So as I share this morning what I feel like the Lord has, has placed on my heart, as we look at his word, uh, I'm going to ask for a lot of grace this morning. Um, we're going to be talking about some difficult things. Um, if you were here last week, that was uh, the beginning. It gets more uncomfortable as we go. Um, and I'm just going to ask for grace. If, if, if at some point in time I say something here this morning that sounds like, whoa, did he really just... Please come and talk to me. Uh, I heard this phrase a couple weeks ago, and it's, I've been using it a lot lately. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Uh, please listen to my heart. And again, if you have questions, I, I would love to talk with you uh, about these this morning. But there's going to be some, some things we talk about that are pretty uncomfortable. Uh, and I feel like we need to go there. In, in our current cultural climate, if we don't go there, if we don't as the church lead the way, who will? So... I was praying with the worship team this morning, and I said, if people in here are anything like me, when things get a little uncomfortable, my tendency is to push back from the table. I don't like that. That's uncomfortable. That feels, ooh, should we really go there? My prayer for us this morning is that as, as things maybe hit a little close to home, as they get a little uncomfortable, that we lean in and we allow the Lord to speak. Would you do that this morning? Would you, would you commit to that this morning? This is not a time for silence. Yes? Okay, good. That was not a rhetorical question. I appreciate you. So last week, uh, we, we got into a topic that, that the world's eyes have really been open to lately. And I believe that as the world has been coming to this, it's something that Jesus said 2,000 years ago, and God has been saying since the very beginning, we've just forgotten about it. With all of the racial tension and, and racial injustice that has been brought to the forefront, it's in the headlines, the news, uh, protests everywhere, we began to discuss this in terms of what does this mean for us as a church? We've been talking a lot about kingdom life. If you are in here this morning and you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have been called to partner with the king in moving the kingdom forward. Amen? Now, part of partnering with the king is that we begin to value the things that the king values. Makes sense, right? When we value what he values, we'll fight for what he fights for, yeah? So one of the, the focuses that we looked at last week was a kingdom value is giving value to the, quote, valueless. We looked at a bunch of different scriptures where Jesus would go to those who in that day and age had no value. Women, Samaritans, the Roman centurion, uh, sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, those that the, the top in culture kind of held at arm's length and went, ew, we don't talk to them, we don't eat with them, we're not seen with them in public. And those were the people Jesus went to. And we looked at a whole bunch of different instances where Jesus made it his mission to give them value, to break bread with them, which in that day and age was seen as a huge honor. You and I are equals. We can sit at the same table. To touch the leper, to speak with the Samaritan woman. All of these, Jesus breaking down social barriers to give value to those that culture said was valueless. We as a church have to partner with Jesus in this. As we look at the culture today, the black community is kind of rising up and going, we have value Again, the, the chant that's out there, Black Lives Matter, they're going, we feel valueless in culture, 
we need you to see we have value, and it should be the church leading the way in this. Amen? It's not even close to uncomfortable yet. This is what we're called to do, to partner with the king in bringing value to the valueless. But here, Jesus also talks, and he says that there is a cost to following him. There is a cost to becoming like him. There is a cost to being on mission with him. And so it's one thing to hear a message, bring value to the valueless, the, the orphans, the widow, the poor, the immigrant, and we can go, yes, amen. It's another thing to actually begin to do it. There is a cost associated. What is the cost of equality. We love the idea of equality, but what is the cost of equality? We're going to read some longer passages of Scripture here this morning. We'll have them up on the wall, um, and Chris will scroll through them. Are you welcome to open your Bibles. Luke chapter 14 is where we're going to begin. Uh, I spoke a couple weeks back about the idea of Jesus wasn't just out to get a crowd. Jesus wanted people that were all in following him. And so you often saw, whenever the crowd would get too big, There'd be hundreds or thousands following Jesus. He would turn and give them a really difficult truth just to see who's really in. And most of the crowds would, would turn and walk away. And in Luke chapter 14, we have one of these instances. The crowds are following Jesus because, man, he's fed us. We've seen miracles. He's kind of pushing back against the Pharisees who we don't really like. And so there's thousands of people following him. And we find this in Luke 14, starting in verse 25. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. We're going to pause right there. Uh, I was in a Bible study where we're going through the book of Luke, and this passage came up, and we went, Man, I wish he would have used another word other than hate. It's pretty uncomfortable, right? Now, that word there means in comparison to. When people see your love for me, and then they see your love for mother, father, wife, children, it should almost look like hatred, because your devotion to me is so much greater than to any earthly relationship you have. That in and of itself, intense. The crowds would have stopped and gone, whoa, whoa, slow down. That's too much, Jesus. But then he goes on. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Whoever doesn't pick up an instrument of death, death to self, and follow me can't be my disciple. They, they would have been reeling at this point. And so Jesus says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask him for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? 
Jesus is telling them there is a cost to following me. If you thought it was just to sit back, be comfortable, and be buddy-buddy with me, you missed it. There is a cost. And before you take another step, crowds, he was saying, count the cost. Death to self. Count the cost. Now, in saying all of that, with where we were coming from last week, what I don't want you to hear is that, like some kind of equating the Black Lives Matters movement, or any movement like that, I'm not equating that with your salvation, with being able to follow Jesus. It's not that unless you're a part of this movement, you can't be a part of what Jesus is doing. That's not what I'm saying. I don't want to tell the message that giving value to the valueless is equated with your salvation. But Jesus does exactly that. Not in terms of these other labels and other movements out there, but Jesus says part of this counting the cost, if you're not willing to partner with the king in bringing value to those that culture says are valueless, bringing your, your voice your authority, your position, your power to those who don't have those things. Jesus equates this with following him. In Matthew 25, a passage that many have spent hundreds of years trying to make gray, but is actually very black and white. Jesus says this, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on, the, on his glorious throne all the nations will be gathered before them, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put his sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and, and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick and in prison and go visit you? And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me. My heart breaks for this. Depart from me, you who are cursed, into eternal fire prepared for, for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. And they will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever did you, you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Hard teaching. But Jesus is saying, if you don't partner with me in bringing value to the valueless, you're not walking with me. If I can tell you, if there is a passage of scripture that I kind of wish wasn't in there, this would be it. I wish that it said, look, as long as you go to church pretty regularly and try to be a good person, come on in. But what Jesus teaches is those who don't value the valueless, 
those who, don't, who aren't stirred by love enough to move to action are not a part of the kingdom. Back to Luke 14, the, the last passage, uh, 34 and 35. Jesus says this, and this has always really confused me until the last few years. He ends the whole thing on counting the cost by saying salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears, let him hear. Anytime you read in scripture Jesus saying, he who has ears, let him hear, there's something deeper. Jesus is calling people, mull this over for a little bit because I'm trying to get a point across here. And, And I used to read this and I would think maybe Jesus was out in the sun too much. Maybe somebody should have pulled him aside and went, Jesus, salt by definition is salty. Not salty salt isn't a thing. What are you talking about? And I would always just kind of go, okay, be salt and move on. And the Lord spoke to me a couple years back in reading through this and going, salt is always salty. Unsalty salt doesn't exist. It's not a thing. And Jesus was telling people, count the cost, because if you think you can follow me without actually following me, you're lying to yourself. You can't call yourself salt without being salty. You can't follow Jesus without actually living like Jesus, without valuing the things that he valued and being moved to action like he was moved to action. Count the cost. Because there's no such thing as unsalty salt. You are or you're not. The proof is in the pudding. Your life shows that you are salt or it doesn't. I don't care what you call yourself. Now, I'm not trying to to preach some salvation by works. You have to earn God's grace by loving enough people. No, doesn't exist. But if your love for him doesn't move you to action then James would say your faith is dead. Faith without works is no faith at all. It's unsalty salt. It's not a thing. If we as the church aren't moved to partner with the king in bringing value to those that culture deems as valueless, we have some very serious questions to ask about our own faith. And I wish I could paint that in some easier to swallow way, but Jesus didn't give me that option. Sheep, goats. You saw the poor and you helped. You saw the needy and you met their needs. Or you didn't. Your faith moved you to love and action that the world didn't know what to do with, or it didn't. Now, are we all going to be perfect in this? No. Please don't hear if you've ever not helped when you felt the Lord push you to, like, "Uh uh-oh, you're out. No. But is my faith moving me to action? If not, it's no faith at all. There is a serious disconnect. If I can look at what's happened at the world around us, I can look at the sick, the poor, I can look at the, the, the protests and everything that happened and just kind of go and get over it, move on. There is a disconnect in my heart. Jesus is calling us to value the things that he valued, to value the people that he valued. And they weren't the ones on top. He said, I didn't come for those that were well. I came for the sick. And he's calling us to the same thing. So what is the cost of equality? 
First, comfort. If we are going to follow Jesus in bringing value to the valueless, helping make equal those that society says are less than, it's going to cost us our comfort in a couple different ways. First, we're going to have to have a lot of uncomfortable conversations. This right here is death to most American Christians. I have to potentially offend someone. I have to have maybe a politically incorrect conversation. I have to take a hard stance where the world's telling me not to. We push back from the table. It will cost you comfort. You're going to have to have uncomfortable conversations. Uncomfortable conversations with people from different cultures where you can begin to understand their point of view, where you can begin to ask questions. And listen, most of them are going to start really uncomfortably because we don't know what to say. We don't know the right terminology to use. Every time I say black community, I'm going, wait, am I supposed to say African-American? Am I supposed to say people of color? And I trip and I fumble all over myself. But am I willing to have the conversations with people to even say, hey, you're a part of this community. Will you teach me even what words I should use? Because I just don't know. To have these kind of uncomfortable conversations with people that are culturally different from us, socioeconomically, racially, nationally, whatever it may be, we push back because it makes us feel ignorant. But here's the truth, we are. Now, ignorant is a term that's been weaponized. It, it, we use ignorant oftentimes as a slam against people. That person's ignorant, meaning that person's rude, that person's stupid. Ignorant literally just means lacking knowledge. We, we don't know the right steps to take. We don't know the right words to use. We don't know the answers to some of these questions, but we're so scared to ask, sometimes for fear of offending, sometimes for fear of, I'm just going to look stupid. And so we choose to remain in ignorance. We're going to have to have some uncomfortable conversations with people that don't look like us, talk like us, act like us, come from where we come from, to go, hey, I am a little ignorant in this. I don't understand. Will you help me understand? I've been a part of some of these conversations when we lived in Cleveland, since we've been here, some like over text, some face-to-face. -face. And I'll tell you, they've turned out beautifully because they've started with asking questions and they were met with grace because people want to be understood. I didn't come in telling people how they're wrong and they should believe like me. I came in going, will you tell me your story? Because I really don't understand what's happening. I really, like, when, when they talk about this, here's what it looks like to me, but it seems like it looks like something different to you. Will you help me understand that? And the amount of relational capital that that builds, the amount of grace that that fosters is incredible. And I can begin to now understand. I can begin to put ignorance aside and begin to see things from someone else's point of view, but only if I'm first willing to have the uncomfortable conversations. We're going to have to have some uncomfortable conversations on behalf of people that don't look like us, talk like us, act like us, come from where we come from. When the jokes start flying around the workplace, when somebody makes a comment, when, to be able to, to have the uncomfortable conversation, stand up and go, hey, real quick, like, that's, kind of, that's pretty devaluing to that people group, and like, that's not what I'm about. Uh, can we talk about that? To actually defend those that maybe aren't there to defend themselves or that maybe have been kind of pushed down so long they've given up on defending themselves. For those of us that have a voice, that have a position,
to be able to step in and go, time out. We're not going to do this anymore. I'm not going to go here anymore. It is uncomfortable, but what value that speaks to people in that community, to people that have been the butt of jokes. I brought it up last week. Those of us in West Virginia should understand this probably more than most other people in the country. West Virginia has been the butt of the country's jokes for how long now? And the power to be able to, if I'm up in Ohio somewhere and somebody makes the joke of like, oh, does everyone in your church have shoes? That's not funny. What you're joking about is abject poverty. Not very funny. There's ways to do it graciously, and I'm not always gracious. But I refuse to allow those that I care for to be put down, to be devalued. Do we care for those that look different from us, that talk different from us? Do we care enough to speak up on their behalf? The cost of equality is comfort. Here's where things get real uncomfortable. Do your seats have seatbelts? Mm, too bad. Okay, because we're going to talk about one of the most uncomfortable things we can talk about in a group like this. White privilege. Come on. White privilege is another word that's been weaponized. Depending on how it's used in community, can be used to beat anyone with light skin over the head. You should be ashamed of yourself. You should feel guilty. You should... That's wrong. That, that is a weaponized version that is misleading and wrong. And actually pretty easy to speak out against. When somebody says something like that, you've just been handed everything. No, I haven't. Don't be dumb. No one's just been handed the keys to the city. We've all had to work. Like It's, it's so easy to dismiss. But truly, what white privilege is, there is such a thing as white privilege. And as I talk about it, if you feel at all like a sense of guilt or shame coming up, that's not from the Lord. Ignore that. Put that to the side. But truly what we need to do is recognize there, there are privileges that we have because of the color of our skin. Again, not that it's just been handed to you or, oh, it's been so easy. But it was put to me like this a couple years back. Uh, there was a panel discussion that our, our district of churches was holding, uh, and there was uh, a group of brothers up on the stage um, from the black community who were pastors, and they just began to share some of these things, and, and for the first time with me, something clicked. One of them said, you know, when we talk about white privilege, it, it means a lot of different things to different people. He's like, but in my experience, here's what it means. Speaking to a white audience, he said, when was the last time that you woke up in the morning and, and reminded yourself that you were a white man. That's going to affect your interactions today. And so you need to be aware that you're a white man. And I was like, it's kind of silly. I don't know that I've ever had that thought. Like, why would I have that thought? And they said, every day when we wake up, we have to remind ourselves or something in culture reminds us that we're black. And it's going to affect interactions that we have. It's going to affect the job interview. It's going to affect what happens if, if we see police lights behind us. Like, the color of my skin is going to affect the interactions that I have today. Not that everyone is prejudiced, but there's enough out there that I have to be prepared to go above and beyond to overcome whatever prejudices may be out there. And I'm sitting there going, I've never had that thought. I've never gone into a job interview and gone, okay, remember, you're white. 
so they're probably going to think this and this and this about you, or there's a chance they're going to think this and this and this about you, you got to overcome that. I, I've never been in that situation. And as I came home, and it may be easier for half of you in here to identify with, because I came home and I was talking with Kim about it, and I was going again, I've, I've never had to be reminded of this. And she goes, I'm pretty familiar with that. I was like, what? What are you talking about? And she was like, every day, I'm aware that I'm a woman. There's certain places I can't go. There's certain ways I have to carry myself. There's certain ways I have to dress. There's all of these different things. And I'm constantly aware that as a woman, how, is this an okay situation for me? What are people thinking here? Am I causing someone to stumble there? Like what, all of these different lines that she had to walk. And she goes, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I'm like, dang it. <laughs> I don't understand anything. But that's the privilege. As a white man, I don't have to understand those things. I can blindly keep going through life like I always did because I am a part of majority culture. Most people look like me, think along the lines of me, talk like me. I have to worry about, okay, don't say something stupid in the interview. I don't have to worry about overcoming prejudice. That is a privilege that I have. So the question then is not, okay, what do we do? We should, we should feel real guilty and we should whip ourselves on the back and feel horrible. Like, no. But we should recognize that I have been given a privilege, a gift, not to use for my own gain, but how do I use this privilege to open doors for others? How do I use this privilege to open doors for women who have to deal with this prejudice? How can I go before them and help a, a scriptural term make the pathway straight for them? How can I do that for my brothers and sisters in the black community, the brown community, the yellow community, the red community? How can I use the voice and the privilege that God has given me that I do not need to feel ashamed of, but I need to be a good steward of? How can I use that privilege to open doors for them? That is what God is calling us to. If you're white in here, you have a certain level of privilege. If you're a white male in here, you have the most. And the scriptures say to those who have, they'll be held accountable for it. How are we using the privileges afforded to us? Again, not in some weaponized way of because it's been so easy for you. I believe you have worked for what you have. But there are certain doors that were automatically open to you that might not have been automatically open to someone else. How do you use your privilege to open doors? Will that be uncomfortable? Yeah. But that's the cost of equality. You uncomfortable yet? Okay, you asked for it. The second thing that's going to cost us, our view of history. I just heard an ugh, like, here we go. We have a very whitewashed view of history. If you read most of our history books, America is always the good guy, anyone else always the bad guy, right? Right. America always fighting for truth, justice, liberty. Everyone else, tyranny, injustice. We're always the white knight. But let's be real. These are things that aren't talked about a whole lot in our history classes. We try to just, we might kind of go, oh yeah, that happened. <clears throat> anyway, but think of the, remember this time that we did and it was awesome? 
part of our history is subjugating people that don't look like me. Murdering and taking what they have. Keeping in bondage and oppression for hundreds of years. America was built on the back of slavery. We don't talk about this. We don't recognize this. We, as white people, again, part of this privilege thing, we got about a 400-year head start on the black community. We can't now then just step back, hit the reset button, and go, okay, everything's fair now. You're good. We use that time. And again, if at any point in time you hear, you hear guilt or shame, please understand that's not my heart. But historically, people that looked like us used that 250 years of just out-and-out slavery, and then about 150 years after that, of relative slavery, to amass wealth, power, authority. We created laws and systems in that time to make sure that those that look like us stay on top, and those that don't have to struggle at best. We can't keep that whitewashed view of history that goes America was always the good guys. Indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. When that, when the Pledge of Allegiance was created, justice was not available to all in the United States. Men and women fought and died in wars where they never saw the freedom that was purchased. There may be some areas where we need to stop and repent for our country. I have never owned a slave. I have never knowingly oppressed anyone. But I have to understand that the country that I hold dear has, and we may need to stop and repent. Lord, would, would you forgive us? The years that we talked about justice and liberty while practicing slavery and oppression. This is uncomfortable stuff. Because now when we look back at history, people that look like me weren't always the good guys. Or maybe they were in this situation and they weren't in that situation. And our history becomes a lot messier. But then we can actually begin to deal with some of the systems and the issues that have come out of that time. Until we can recognize that our history wasn't always perfect, we weren't always the white knights, we're never going to deal with any of the problems that were created during that time. And again, we can't live with 400 years of holding a people down and then just go, oops, sorry, okay, everything's fair now, we're good. It doesn't work like that. The third cost of equality we're going to look at this morning, and there may be many more, is fairness. We are going to have to give up our right to fairness. We always tell our kids, fair is where you get popcorn. I don't like cotton candy, though. Maybe that's why I don't go to the fair. That's why I've never been interested in fairness, because they equate it with cotton candy. No. Fairness being everyone's treated exactly the same, right? We, we know this with our children. When we're raising our children, we don't treat everyone exactly the same, because they're different people with different needs. And we look at a situation, and we contextualize. What does this child need in this situation? It may be different from what this child needs in this situation. 
And if you're a good parent, you kind of threw fairness out the window because I want to meet the needs of each child wherever they are. Not just blanket, you always get this and you never get that. As a country, especially as, as followers of Jesus and especially as white followers of Jesus, we have to let go of fairness in favor of equality. And what I mean by that is this. We have to be willing to go out of our way to show extra value to those who for decades, centuries, have been told they have no value. We have to be willing to let go some of our rights to give to them because they've had so little for so long. Uh, Paul talks like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and hear me, he's, talking, he's going to be talking to the church about spiritual gifts that the church has, but the way that the gifts were used in that time was to create a hierarchy. If you have these gifts, you're on top. If you have these gifts, you're kind of lesser. And they were completely missing it. And so Paul's talking to the church, speaking about spiritual gifts, but I believe there's principles that apply to, to how we uh, work in our nation. So 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he says this, The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now again, I don't want to take something out of context. Paul is speaking to the church, called to be literally one body, brothers and sisters in the kingdom, something that will never be achieved in the world. The unity like this only happens through the power of the Holy Spirit. But the principle here is Paul is going, look, fairness needs to be thrown out the window because there are parts that need to be shown special honor and special attention. And there are other parts that don't need that special attention. Let's not worry about giving everyone the same thing. What do we have to do to lift up those that are low? And it's going to cost those that are high to do it. There are certain segments of our community that we need to show an unfair amount of grace to, an unfair amount of opportunity. We need to give them the mic an unfair amount of time so their voice can be heard. And, and it feels unfair, right? It feels like, why does this cost me? I didn't do anything. I have been given all of that for so long that now it's time to spend it on behalf of others. To begin to give them extra value, because again, they've been told for so long they have none. It's going to take time. It's not going to look fair, but it's to bring about equality. Paul says this later in Philippians chapter 2. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. 
Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus at any point in time could have gone, this isn't fair. I don't like this. I want to quit. But instead, he humbled himself and said, I will spend everything I have on behalf of others. I will make myself their servant, and it won't be fair, but it will bring them up. It will give them value, and that's what he came to do. So he became a suffering servant, even to the point of his own death, on our behalf. And Paul says, live likewise. Consider others better than yourself, even to the point where you're willing to sacrifice to serve them. And it won't be fair. But that's how Jesus lived. And we're called to live the same way. So what is the cost of equality? Again, the list could probably go on. But comfort, our view of history and fairness. We have to let go of these things. But what do we gain from paying the price for equality? Jesus said, count the cost. Okay, well, here's at least three things that it's going to cost us. What do we gain? First, we gain the country we've always wanted and that many of us thought we had. We gain a country where we can put a hand over our heart and say justice for all and mean it. We gain a country that we can truly be proud of. There's going to be marks on our history, but that we say we've owned them, we've repented of them, and now we're moving forward together. Listen, our country is never going to be perfect. Like we find in Scripture, there's always going to be brokenness in the world, and America is always going to be a part of the world. But how are we as a church moving to make our nation the nation we want it to be? The nation where what we say we value, we value. There will always be broken pieces, but the church is called to lead our nation forward. So we have an opportunity to gain the country we've always wanted. We will see the kingdom advance if we begin to partner with the king and value the, quote, valueless, we will see the kingdom advance. I read this passage last week from Isaiah 58, where where God was saying some very harsh things to the nation of Israel. Stop having your feasts. Stop having your worship gatherings. He actually says, I hate these things because if you're not willing to speak up for those who can't speak up for themselves... He says, I don't want it. Don't you dare come to me with prayer and fasting while you're oppressing other people. He says, don't you dare do it. But then he finishes with this hopeful statement. Is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke. To set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and provide for the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked to clothe them and to not turn away from your own flesh and blood? 
Then your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and he will say, Here am I. If you do away with the yoke of impression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness. Your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. If you don't read some of that poetic language, if it doesn't stir something in you, check your pulse. But there's always an if. If you will spend yourself on behalf of the needy, if you will meet the needs of the oppressed, if you will give the wanderer shelter, if you will clothe the naked, God says, I will break forth like the dawn. Your light will shine in the darkness like the noonday if you will bring value to those who don't have it. The kingdom will advance, and we, those of us that choose to take up the cause of Christ in this scenario, we will experience the presence of the Lord like never before. It says he will be our rear guard. He will guide our steps. He will satisfy our needs in a sun-scorched land. If we will pay the cost and do the hard work of valuing what the king values, following the king, loving like the king, then we will experience the king like never before. Our lives will be transformed. Our community will be transformed because we will move in the power of the king. The third thing we gain, paying the price for equality. Well done, good and faithful servant. I have a hard time even saying that phrase because my heart longs for it so much. It is the goal of my life to stand before the king and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. In Matthew 25, before the, the passage that we read before, Jesus tells a parable of the talents. And he says, the master was going away, and so he called three servants. He gave one of them five talents. Talents were an amount of gold. He gave one of them two talents, and he gave one of them one talent. And it says he went away for a while, and when he came back, he called the servants up, and he said, all right, show me what you got. And the one he gave five, he said, look, I doubled it. I worked hard with what you gave me, and I doubled it. There's ten. And the master says, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. The one that he gave two talents, he says, come on up. What, what, what you got? And he says, I doubled it. I have four. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. And the one who has one, he says, all right, what you got? And he says, look, I didn't really believe that you're good. I know that you're harsh and cruel, and so I just buried it in the dirt. Here's the one you gave me. I didn't put it to work at all. 
And the master says, away from me, you wicked servant. Take what he has and give it to the one that has ten. If we will pay the cost, if we will partner with the king, investing what he's given us on behalf of others, we will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Someone told me this about 15 years ago, and it makes so much sense, and it's stuck with me. If you want to hear well done, you must do well. Many of us want to hear well done by sitting in comfort, by sitting in privilege, and just waiting it out. We'll go to church, we'll sing the songs, we'll do the things that don't really cost us much, and we're hoping to hear well done. You won't. If you want to hear well done, you have to do well which means partnering with the king in his work, bringing value to those who don't have value, bringing the good news to those who are dead and need life. If you want to hear well done, you must do well. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, that's a lot. It is hard to know where to go from here. It is hard to know what steps to take. We need the leading of your Holy Spirit. We need for you to speak clearly, Lord. We're not used to listening. Would you give us a next step, even this week, of how we may put our faith into action? God, how we may invest what you've given us on behalf of those who don't have. That we would spend ourselves on behalf of the needy, that your light would break forth like the dawn. This is going to be uncomfortable. This is going to cause us to change our perspective and our point of view, or rather allow you to change it. This is going to cost us, God, we're going to have to live sacrificially. Perhaps with money, definitely with influence and voice and power. Would you show us the way? God, our desire is to follow you in this, to be like you. Would you lead us? We're going to end this week, much like we ended last week, with just a time of silence. To do business with the Lord. Um, whether that is some repentance that needs to take place, whether that is prayers for boldness and opportunity, whether that is, is prayer for a next step, wherever you find yourself this morning, ask the Lord to draw you one step deeper, one step closer.